Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. Normally, I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. But last week, we began what to me is a very special and very important interview with Manda Scott. In June, I was visiting with Manda at her home in the UK. When I first met Manda almost 20 years ago now, she had only recently stopped practicing veterinary medicine to become instead a full-time writer. She had already published a series of detective novels, but at that point, she was focused on her Boudicca books, a series of historical novels set at the time of the Roman invasion of Britain. Manda's writing is very much informed by her spiritual practice. She teaches shamanic dreaming, and that was the connection we were exploring in a course we did together this summer. We were linking my work with balance and Manda's shamanic dreaming. It was a phenomenal three days. On our last evening together, we sat down at her kitchen table and recorded a podcast. For me, this was such an important conversation. Manda is reminding us that our love of horses is connected to our love for this planet. We are in what has been referred to as the sixth extinction. It is my belief that horse people can and must make a difference. We're going to let Manda explain how we can do that. And we want our horses to be eating grass and the soil that they take in with it that's full of life. And soil should be full of life. So heading back to our bigger picture, one of the other things that really we're trying to do here in terms of sustainable horsemanship is to bring ourselves into a place where we become soil farmers, where we are growing the soil, where we are using our horses as part of a regenerative system to increase the soil biome, therefore increase the depth of soil, and that draws carbon in. And if we get it right, we could become carbon negative. We could become somewhere where we're taking more carbon into the soil than we are putting out even with our 21st century Western lifestyle. And this is, I think this is one of the things that I find really exciting. There's a a gentleman in New Mexico, I think, David Johnson, the originator of the Johnson Sioux Biodigester, which is a whole other little avenue we could go down. It's so (laughs) exciting, but not for now. Um, But David Johnson reckons that if 40% of the surface area of the planet that is currently being intensively farmed were to be farmed in a regenerative style, which is to say you're farming in a way that draws in carbon and you're still producing just as much in terms of food, if not better, you're producing what to us certainly seems to be much healthier food, we would be back to pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere within 10 years. Wow. We have the answer. And we're just not doing it because we hold a narrative that says we have to have monocultures because it's the only way to feed a rising population. And it's not true. You know, this is fundamentally and demonstrably 
untrue. If anyone listening is really interested in this, there's a relatively new book out this last couple of months called Dirt to Soil by a man called Gabe Brown, who is American, and he was an industrial intensive farmer, and now he farms regeneratively, and it's a really nicely written, very easy read, you can read it in an evening, book that describes his transition, his journey from being a hardcore, intensive monoculture farmer to understanding how polycultures and regenerative farming are just so much more satisfying and so much more more productive. And, and I'm thinking of how of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who own horses and who have their horses at home on small holdings. And if we all started to really learn how to manage the acreage that we have in this sustainable way, that the ripple effect of that knowledge and understanding, these little seeds planted everywhere that there are horses, that would be astounding, absolutely astounding. Goosebumps. Yeah, it would be transformative. I'm seeing some of what you're doing here. So let's talk. You've you've been to my barn. You've seen the acreage that we have. And you've been to other farms. And you know what you're doing here and what is readily doable, what's going to be easy, what's going to be hard. I've got a horse farm. How do I go about managing my land in a more sustainable way in where I'm going to grow the soil. Where do I begin? Okay. How do I go about it? So we're now talking to, it, it, whether it's whether we're thinking about my the, the clicker center exact, precisely mm. or just a, a horse farm, farm in general. Okay. Yeah. So, so there are some fundamental principles and the first one is no pesticides, no herbicides, no fertilizers, no inorganic fertilizers. And we're, we're going to go back to a system called mob grazing, but we're not going to do it exactly. So let's have a look at mob grazing. Mob grazing originated with people looking at how, how the buffalo used to roam across the prairies of America, say, or any other place where herds of ungulates generally move across an area. And they Great stay yeah, exactly. Yeah. They stay bunched together because that's the way you avoid being eaten by the local predators. You don't want to be on your own because that way you're going to get picked off. So everything stays close together. They therefore are passing dung and urine in this close together cramped space. They're eating the grass, but particularly cattle, wildebeest, bison, whatever. They they eat grass in a particular way. They curl their tongue around it, and then they kind of rip at it. They don't do what sheep do, which is nibble it right down to the root. And then they move on. They trample everything in, the dung, the urine, the grass is there, and then they go. And they might not come back to that place for months, um, if not possibly years. But they're certainly going to give the grass time to grow. So there's a thing called the law of the second bite, which is your grass doesn't want to be bitten twice. Because grass is... A, a bit above the ground, which is basically a solar panel that takes in sunlight and converts it into carbon-based starches, right. glucose largely, and sends it down to the roots. 
And if you have a healthy soil biome, so the soil biome is fungi and bacteria, and these are working for your plants. Your fungi are, are little messengers that rush off and get the minerals, particularly, that plants need, provided the plant is talking to them and feeding them the carbohydrates. It's a quid pro quo. I am a plant. I have a green bit above the ground. I will draw in sunlight. I will turn it into something useful that you, the fungi, want. You, in turn, will go down, down, down into the rock layers and bring me up the, let's say, magnesium that I need to grow and to be healthy. If we as farmers throw fertilizer, which is basically the very basic building blocks of nitrogen, potassium and phosphate at our land, then the plants take that and they grow and they look great and they don't bother making the relationships with the fungi and the bacteria. They don't need to because they're growing, but they're growing like kids fed McDonald's. You know, they might grow long and tall, but their bones are not necessarily particularly strong. So what we want is for our plants to have to work a little bit harder. They, they have enough leaf above the ground to use the sunlight and turn it into carbohydrates, but they need to build the relationships with their neighbors that they don't bother to build if we're busy feeding them easy food. They build the relationships with the fungi and the bacteria, which then go off and get the minerals. And we used to do that until around about the Second World War. This is what we did. But nowadays, the say the iron content in the spinach that we're growing just now is 3% of the iron content when you and I were kids. Wow. Because, because we're feeding them the easy grow, the, the right, nitrogen, potassium, right. the phosphate, and they're not bothering to go off. And, and the fungi are not doing their job. So as horse farmers, as humans who want good biodiversity, we need to be, first of all, look at the land that we've got. Look at what's growing there. Consider how is it growing. And, and there's a lot of work to be done on what kind of soil we've got, all of those things. Um, what I will probably do at the end is give you a list of useful websites to go on to get more data because everybody's land is different. Right. And a friend of mine who's really into this said, if you're only going to do one test, make it the water absorption test. That's where you take a tin can, you cut both ends off, so you've basically got a cylinder of, of metal, you plonk it into the earth, you pour water in, and you see how long it takes before it's absorbed. Because that gives you an index of how easy it's going to be to help transform your land. The faster so the water drains away, basically, the, the, the easier it's going to be. If you're on very clay soil and you come back in an hour and, and the water has basically not moved, it's going to be hard work. But that's a bit more detailed than we need to get to. Okay. Fundamentally, what we want is to have many, many more species than we probably start off with. And the way we get to that, the reason we end up with monocultures is partly because we feed them, partly because we sow seeds of monocultures, so we want to stop doing that, but partly because also we tend to let our horses graze the grass right down. And when there's only a tiny little bit of green above the surface that's available for photosynthesis, the roots can't go down far. So we end up with species that, ha that can survive with very shallow root networks, like buttercups. You know, our field that you've seen out the front, not our field, but our neighbour's field, neighbor's field, basically a buttercup farmer, because he lets his sheep graze this field right down till it's sheep wrecked to death, 
And then he takes them off and the buttercups go, woohoo, there's nothing else except us. And we have beautiful yellow fields that are completely not useful for anything to graze on. And sheep are, sheep are not great for fields, but they certainly don't want to be left on until there's only two millimetres of grass. So the rule is either the law of the second bite, you let it grow big and you don't let them have a second bite, or basically you graze you, you let it grow till it's eight inches, till basically in this country you can put a beer can in it and not see it. And that's fine. And then they can and then you let them graze, your horses, your cattle, your sheep. And when you can put the beer can on its side and only just see the top, you take them off. Okay. So this is obviously designed measure. designed by people who drink beer. I don't right. drink beer. But I'm sure but it's eight inches is good. Less than two inches is not good. If you can do that, then it takes between 14 and 17 days for your for that grass that's been grazed down to about two inches for their root structure to recover. And in an ideal world, you want to create a biodiverse grazing sward where you have deep, deep roots. So things like yarrow. Yarrow, when left to thrive, sends roots three meters down into the earth. It's going to be able to bring up the minerals that we're going to begin to want. Right. And it may be, when you start off, so I listened to a really interesting lecture by a guy called Dan Kittredge, I'll give you his details. He runs something called the Bionutrient Food Association, which is really near you. And he is amazing. He knows so much stuff. And he was brought up as an, in an organic family. His parents were both organic farmers. He said he'd never eaten anything that wasn't whole food and organic all his life. Went out, got his own farm. He bought what for American standards, sorry, is an old dairy farm. Or our standards, it's pretty new, but you know, it was 1840s right. dairy farm. And he said the ground was basically brown paste. It was beaten to nothing. There were no worms. It was nothing. He, you, you, one of the other things is we do not want to till the soil. We don't want to break up the biome. But just this once, he, he drilled it to half an inch. So he just opened up the top surface. He dusted it with rock dust because it would take a long time to get the plants to go down deep enough. Right. So he gave it a mineral food, but just rock dust. He went and got to the local quarry, found out what you ideally basalt, something like that's very high in lots of minerals, got the dust, dusted that. I can't remember the pound to the acre, but it's on his website. Put in drip lines for water. So he's got air, minerals, water, covered it with old hay, and in six weeks he was planting into it. And that was the last time he ploughed it or added anything, except the year before he came to us, there was some kind of tobacco mosaic virus outbreak and it was annihilating the potatoes and the tomatoes, haha, tomatoes <laughs> um, in the area. And he sprayed again with rock dust and molasses that once to give the plants not roundup definitely not, not roundup up. or anything insectal right. herbicide anything rock no, dust and rock molasses. dust and molasses and his crops survived and everybody else's died huh. so we're we're trying to create a system where we've got massive increases in biodiversity so we stop sowing monocultures we stop sowing even three or four seeds types the old old pastures where they had 60 different species per square meter, less than 10% of that was grasses. And this is the thing, we think of our horses as grass eaters, and they're not, they're herbivores. 
They eat herbage. They're designed to browse. They're designed to go up a lot. They're designed to move around a lot. And they're designed to eat grass about once every 10 paces. Not all of the time. And, and we think fields are green because they're full of grass. Right. Because that's what we've seen. That's, I mean, it's not that we are deliberately making mistakes, but we just need to change our mindset. So we're trying to aim for a place where we've got soil that's growing because we're managing the pasture and we're getting biodiversity. We're getting those two things. We're getting an increase in the soil depth, which and soil is fungi, bacteria and minerals. That's what soil is. In one teaspoon of soil, there's more bacteria than there are stars in the universe. Apparently. Wow. That's a big, yeah, yes. big numbers. It's a great, big numbers. Right. great um, metaphor. Big, well, big yes. teaspoon. Yes. Um, but we, so, and, and they all have, you know, they're all, they are basically carbon-based structures. Fungi and bacteria have carbon-based cell walls. So in the process of building, building, building the soil depth, then we are drawing carbon into the land. And there's one of these great myths that, you know, cows are deeply bad because they give off methane. If we get the soil biome right, the bacteria in the soil draw in the methane from the cattle as they burp it out and use it to create, because methane is basically carbon also, right. to create their cell structures. You know, these things are all, it's all there. We have the answers. It's just that we've managed to kind of kick things out of balance a bit. And, and, and now the systems aren't working. But as you said, we can bring this back. So fundamentals. So if I went to your horse farm, the mob grazing is such that when we do it with cattle, when people do it with cattle, they put a lot of cattle into a very small area for a very short period of time. So the, the really busy guys are moving their cattle two or three times a day. And so they get that effect of a lot of dung, a lot of urine, it's all trampled in, the grass is not eaten, it's eaten evenly because the, they don't have much choice. So they, they don't leave the patches that they don't want, but they're moving on quickly onto new stuff. Okay. But the problem is we are not, cattle are not performance animals. And to be brutal, we're not really that concerned with their physiological capacities. It's not nice, but it's the way it is. Nobody is looking at the cow to see, is its hip moving okay? We care rather more about our horses. Yes. We want them to be fit. And horses should be walking 10 kilometers a day, minimum. And so there's a balance. We can't do with our horses what they're doing with the cattle. It's just, you can't keep horses, well, people do obviously keep horses on tiny, tiny areas, but it's not healthy. So if we're trying to aim for a sustainable horse farm, we're going to have to try and work out a system where we can get the mob grazing effect, but still allow our horses uh a lifestyle that feels like it's as close as we can get to being the Carnade on 40,000 acres of Snowden. Right. Without having without 40,000 acres, 40, acres of Snowden. Without having 40,000 acres. Exactly. So, so what we do is, I've, I've got my land, and if I had your land, I would, you want, you want them coming in because you want to talk to them, you want to clicker train them, you want them to be relating because that's why we have them. So we have shelter and water near to where the people are. This is kind of permaculture for horses. Come in here for the shelter from the flies and water and hay nets, if we're going to give you hay nets. And also we tend to have hard standing because it's really good for your feet to walk over something that isn't mud and grass. Right. Assuming that we're barefoot um, because that's also 
the best for your paddocks. Horses, shoes, cut up the ground, and in an ideal world, we're going to be barefoot. But obviously not everybody can do that. But even so, you want them to come into hard standing, have the shelter, have the water. You then want a way to gain access to paddocks where you can rotate them. And, and you're looking then at the grass. So I'm watching my grass very carefully. When it gets over eight inches, I can let them out. And in an ideal world, you start this in the winter, you let their weight drop over winter because that's what horses are designed to do. They're, they're designed to put on weight in the summer and lose weight over the winter. And clearly within performance guidelines. And so you're aiming for, do you have the system in the States where you condition score and it's a one to five? Yes. Okay, yes. so you don't want to be at but one But not everybody's going to be familiar with that. So could okay. you just briefly... So, so a condition score of one is an emaciated horse and nobody wants that. And a condition score of five is grossly obese. And I'm ashamed to say that my ponies are remarkably close to five, but not quite there. And I'm working very hard to get them low. Last winter was very mild with us, so we didn't lose nearly enough weight. Um, and so we want to be hovering, you know, a condition score of three is our ideal. It's in the middle. Um, if you can see all of the ribs and the hip bones and, and, and they look scrawny, then you're a one. If you're beginning to get fleshing over the ribs, you're heading between two and three. By the time you can't see the ribs, you're getting from four to five. And by the time you've got fat pads... You're not only five, you've probably got metabolic syndromes as well. Right. Um, and I, there's a separate podcast on the difference between an overweight pony and something with metabolic syndrome and the extent to which gut biome influences those, because I really think it does. In humans, gut biome influences our immune system hugely. There's a lot of work being done now on changing the human gut biome and how it affects everything from Alzheimer's, to ME, to fibromyalgia, to migraines, to epilepsy, to all kinds of things. And I, there's such a thesis in search of a graduate student to steal your phrase yes. of what happens if we change the gut biome in a horse with COPD or a horse with sweet itch, horses that have got obvious immune system issues. And with sweet itch, when we bring an Icelandic pony over from Iceland to Britain or America, is it that it's meeting a novel species of culicoides that gives it sweet itch? Or is it that, that Iceland actually has a really good biodiversity because they haven't got around to spraying everything out of existence? Right. And we're bringing it onto monocultures. And they're on a volcanic... Yeah, yeah, really so, mineral-rich. So mineral-rich mineral soil. Yeah. So even though it might not be super uh, thick because it, it's a mineral-rich really soil, rich. it's an interesting... Yeah. Interesting question. It'd be so interesting if someone had the money to just look at the gut biome of Icelandic horses in Iceland and look at the gut biome of Icelandic horses that have sweet itch and don't have sweet itch in our country. Just see what it right. is. Right. Now, we don't know the answers, but that's the point of science is you ask the questions and, and then maybe it's irrelevant, but it would be jolly interesting. Yes, it would. And it the would. same with, with horses with COPD, because horses should not be allergic to grass. And, and you know, the whole, why, why are their lungs doing what they're doing? Why can you hear that crisp packet rustle when you hear them breathe at their nostrils? Is, I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole separate thing. How did we get there? We got there from, what are we doing in our pasture? So we want our pasture, we want a route from our loafing area where they hang around. Um, and we start in the winter, we let them come to a condition score three 
ish, a little bit less. And then we gradually introduce them to our pasture in the summer, in, in the spring. And in an ideal world, because the grass is long, it's over eight inches, it's quite fibrous. Short grass is stressed grass, is grass with high fructans, and that's the dangerous grass. And the thinking at the moment, particularly with laminitis, is that it's the imbalance. You, you eat something that's high in fructans, you get an overgrowth of the streptococci. They release the toxins and the toxins create the laminitis. And so it's all down to an overgrowth of the wrong bacteria in the hindgut. So if we can get to a point where we don't get that overgrowth, of the wrong bacteria, then I hope, I believe. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, ponies can get a bit fat. Native, I have native ponies, I have Welsh bees and Connemaras, and they're designed to get fat in the summer and thin in the winter. That's how they live. They, they're out on the hills of Ireland or, or Wales. It's very cold in the winter, and they live off the fat that they developed in the summer. This is how they've evolved. But they didn't evolve getting... Cushings and EICR and all of those things. So they've gone out onto their eight-inch grass, which is really quite fibrous. It doesn't have the fructans at the at the tips. It's not stressed grass. We let them graze it down till it's about two inches, and then we move them onto another bit of what is our segmented pasture. The question then is, how much space have we got, and how much room can we give them? I want my ponies to be able to run around. I want them to be able to and kick and have fun and do all those pony things that ponies like to do. I want them to have shelter from a hedge. So I'm going to have to plant hedgerows between these new field margins or I'm going to have a lot of hedges in my loafing area. So with your barn, you've got really lovely hedges around bits of it. Then structuring the way that we divide up the land so that there's going to be hedgerow somewhere for them to browse in, for them to have shelter from the wind and the rain, and in your case, the flies and the sun, yes, um, is essential. But then they also have free access always to come into the shelter. And I think even in Britain, where we don't see the sun as often as you do, <laughs> um, my ponies will, in the summer, they're in sheltering the flies. What really surprised me that first winter was they six inches of snow and they'd rather be out with snow on their backs, digging snow in the field when they have completely free choice to walk into open stables with what I think is a beautiful straw bed and a hay net and they're going, we spurn your hay net, we want grass, go away. And they just didn't want to come in. So that's fine, yes, your choice. You that's want, right. And the hay net's there if you want it. You have free choice. This is choice and a voice. You can do what you want. And so in the end, you end up with, hopefully, in an ideal world, you've got They've got plenty of room. They're walking backwards and forwards to their grazing from their loafing area. They have grass that's not stressed. And your pasture is getting the dung and the urine. And if they don't eat evenly, then some people suggest you put sheep on immediately after and just because they graze differently. You've got different species selection. And, and you get the grass down to an even four inches, two inches, sorry. There is a suggestion of harrowing, which I think is a disaster. I just don't want to do that because it's going to break up the soil biome. It's going to compress things. It's going to destroy the root structure. So I have my chickens, who are the love of my life. I feel about my chickens the way you feel about your goats. I love them. Yes. And, and they are amazing little chicken tractors at 
they just harrow the land, you know? They go onto the dung and they scatter it everywhere. And so by the time the ponies have been off that section for a couple of days, you wouldn't know where the dung piles were. They've gone. And that's what you want. You want it scattered. And then you leave that land for as long as you can and certainly until the grass is eight inches or more before you bring your ponies back on. We're on the second summer of this. I think we come back to another podcast three or four years from now and we see what the depth of our soil is and we see what the species difference is because I think that's the really important thing. We've got to get the biodiversity back. For, right. for our horses' right. gut health and for our planet, we have to get many, many, many more species into our pastures. So I've bought some seed, what's called MG5 seed, the, the really, the 0.9 hectares that's left in Britain of the very old pastures called MG3. So I've got as close as I can get to that. And I'm going to, when we've taken the hay off the big pastures, I'm going to scatter that seed, put some hay back on top of it as mulch, mainly to stop the chickens feeling <laughs> that I've just given them breakfast. Yes. Um, and hope that we can begin to build the biodiversity. Green hay mulching is is really important. If you've got a pasture that's got really good biodiversity, cut it for hay and then cut your existing pasture and lay the hay, the good biodiversity hay, over the not good biodiversity pasture and it'll mulch down and the seeds will drop in and next year you should have more. You should have what, more. One of the people on our course this weekend is an ecologist and she just spent a weekend near here at a place where 20 years ago they did green hay mulching on four different pastures from different sources and now you can see the results. Wow, interesting. So, and, and we can begin to measure how we increase the biodiversity because we, we've got to. We can't keep losing species at the current rate, so we have to do something. Yeah, and on how which, whichever plane you're resonating with this, whether it's we can't keep having unhealthy horses. Yes, also that. And then beyond that, we can't keep losing the we yeah. we can't we can't stay on this trajectory. Yeah. So it's a win-win. Species. We get, we yeah. get our horses more healthy, and we we are creating little avenues. Imagine if everyone who listened to this podcast were able to do this with their land. Stop spraying, increase the biodiversity, get the roots down, and get the minerals up. You you get to the point where you don't have to give any more mineral supplements because horses didn't evolve with people giving them mineral supplements that right, evolved right. with pasture that had all the minerals in it that you needed. And you might have to spread some rock dust. I'm investigating our local quarries and whether we do that. But one of the really exciting things, Dan Kittridge at the Bionutrient Food Association, I mentioned him already, has created a little handheld spectrometer. It's so exciting because we're going to be able to put samples he's designed it for human food but i'm going to use it for horse food right right you put your I, i'd only got it last week and i haven't had the bandwidth yet to to actually get it out of its packet and work out how to use it but you put a sample in and it gives you the readout of the chemical composition of that grass wow and so at the moment we're in very early stages he wants everyone i think there are couple of hundred dollars and you can get them from the website because at the moment we don't know what that means supposing we're into supposing we have carrots which are both horse food and human food we need to know what's the difference between carrots on my land and carrots grown on your land right what's the difference between carrots grown in the spring and carrots grown in the autumn what's the difference between organic carrots and permaculture carrots and 
not organic carrots and we don't know that but we're going to be able to find out and quite soon it'll be an app on a phone and waiting for the time when you can go into a supermarket and point your phone at the carrot and go you know what this has basically got no nutrients in it and it's full of spray I don't right. want it I'm not eating or, that this is my horse's hay and and gosh look it's got amazing minerals in it now I know what I'm feeding my horse yeah it's going to be utterly transformative and and if we're lucky that too will push the change in the farming systems absolutely because if people are going you know your carrots look great they're all exactly the same size and they're very orange but actually they've got no nutrient contents at all yeah. then I'm shopping the produce section with my spectrometer yes, yes. and actually no thank you i'm not going to buy that no i'm not going to buy that no i'm not yep. going to buy that i might as well be eating cardboard yes i'd rather go to the farmer's market where the carrots are, are covered in mud and gnarly in different shapes but they're actually worth eating right Right. Wow. If we could change the world. That would be a good thing to yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. I think it's and genuinely it starts, exciting. And it, starts with, and it starts with horse people. Yeah. Because we have land. Yeah. And we have, and it's, and we have the ability to make choices. And we care about our horses. And we care the about way, our horses. The you way know, most people, they, you know, cattle are treated differently. Because they're a food source. And horses are our friends and our family. Right. And we want them, we want the best for them. You know, most people, whatever their system, they want the best for their horses. And for so many years, we've been taught that, you know, bright green grass, all looking the same, all very neat, is the best for our horses. And now, particularly, I think this equibiome system of, I can actually see what's going on in my horse's gut biome. Yes. Is so yes. important. Because it gives us that another tool to just look at what might be out of balance. Right. This is what you're going to see when you have an unhealthy horse. This is what you're seeing in healthy horses. This provides some of the answers in terms of the direction to head in, which is really exciting. And it, it's right at its infancy. So we, we have a lot of data collecting to do to, oh. to really know what normals are and, right. and how to create normality when there is... And, you know, how to bring balance out of imbalance, all of those things. It's, it's very new, and but it, it's there. I mean, because some of the studies of taking a horse that's been on demonstrably poor pasture and then moving that horse to a pasture that's, that's got the biodiversity, what changes and how fast does that change occur? So if you could test after a month, six mm. months, a year, what would you see? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we I think you could know. test after a week and yeah. it would be different. Yes, we don't so, know. So, yeah. Really yeah. exciting. Yeah. But we do know is that the way that we currently, that many of us are currently managing our pastures, that we could do better. And yeah. that's what this is really yeah. about. That sometimes it's when you look at your land, you think, well, that sounds really good, but given the topography, given the shape, yeah, given where my right. barn is, given where my fences are, this isn't yeah. possible. And I've had to put up a lot of new fencing. I had to take yeah. down all the old fencing and start again. Um, and that wasn't cheap, but I thought it was worth trying. Right. Basically, we're, we're, we're heading for mass extinction. I can put in some more fences. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, yes, it's... it's and. There's quite a lot of help online. So the system that I'm 
reading most is the equicentral system. There's a group on Facebook called, I think it's now called Equiculture. They, they're really helpful. The people who evolved this, they've got loads of online resources for people. They've got books that they've written. They're, there's an incredibly helpful Facebook group. I know you don't love Facebook, but you know sometimes there are some amazing people yes, on there. And yes. they're very, very generous with their knowledge. And, and so there's a community. They started in Australia. They started, well, they're British. They started in Australia and they came back to Britain. Okay. So there's a lot of Southern Hemisphere people and a lot of British people on the group, but there's quite a lot of Americans right, now too. Right. It's it's moving around the world and it's growing. So it's and it's not it's it's not trivially easy. It it takes it's taken me a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and I still there's things I want to improve next year that I haven't done this year. It's it's a learning curve like anything else and it's right, quite a steep right. learning curve. We have to try. And in this we also have to remember to ask the horses. Yeah, for sure. Because I've seen some setups where people have gotten really excited about changing their pastures around and they've created track systems, equicentral systems of one sort or another, but they never really bothered to ask the horses, mm. well, would you like to live in this? Mm. You know, does this, yeah, sure. does this enrich your life? And if they'd really bothered to ask the horses, the horses would say, actually, no. we, don't, we, don't like this. we don't like this. This yeah. makes us feel hemmed in and trapped yeah. and yeah. and you're forcing us to overgraze when we would we would spend a few minutes yes. here and wander yes. off and spend a few minutes there and so in designing this always we have to include the end user and the end yeah. user is the horse definitely and and i have no doubt that my ponies would much prefer if i'm honest to be on my 10 acre hillside the problem is if i turn them out on 10 acres of hillside I would be treating chronic laminitis with drop pedal bones by now, I think. I'd certainly be treating ponies that look more like hippos than ponies. Right. Especially this year when it's been it's, so it's wet. Been, it's been really wet. The grass is really lush and it, they're supposed, in theory, to self-regulate to the point where they get full and they're not eating so much. And my ponies spend a lot of time not eating but they still manage to be unbelievably fat. So um, I would love to have them turned out on the hill all year. And if I had infinite money, I would buy you know 10,000 acres of the side of Snowdon and, and let them roam, and I think it would be lovely. But, but then it'd be hard to go find them when you wanted to have a cuddle. That's very true. Yes. yes. Well, I'd so, clicker train them, and they would come in and they would come to running. a whistle for right. a very long time. You have whistle. a very piercing whistle, but on 10,000 acres, they might not hear it. They might be on shall the other side. Shall we demonstrate my whistle for the <laughs> no. podcast listeners? No. <laughs> no. No, we I could, shall not. I could go to the other end of the room. No, we shall uh, not demonstrate your no, whistle for the sport. Because, because the piercing sound going through the microphone <laughs> yeah, would, would be, destroy people. Yes. But oh. even so, if they were on the other side of the hill with the wind going in the other yeah, direction, they, hear me. they might not hear your, yeah. your, your whistle. So, you know, we, there are practical considerations in all of this. Yeah. But there's also, there's so much more we can be doing. And we're just thinking about that we're not just maintaining our horses, but we're growing soil. That's a different mindset. That yeah. as I'm managing my pastures, as I'm managing the land that, that we have, that I am a soil manager. A soil farmer, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and if we can do this... So what do I do with my manure pile? Now that's an ending for a podcast that you don't hear very often. But it's an important question. Horses produce manure. If you manage them in a way that you collect it so it piles up, 
what do you do with it? That's the next piece of the puzzle that we're going to consider. For now, Manda has given us a lot to think about. But I don't want this to be just a podcast that you listen to and then it's back to business as usual. This podcast is a call to action. Horse people can make a difference. We just need to know what to do. So we are creating some resources for you. The first is a Facebook group, Horses for Future. This is a gathering place for people who want to make a difference. It's an open group. We want to share ideas, what books, articles, podcasts are each of you finding. Let's share the information so we can all become great soil farmers and change the world. What is working for you on your land? Let's share our successes. You never know, your solution may spark an idea that helps someone else create a better solution for their own horses and land management. So consider Horses for Future to be our community gathering point. Every week we'll have projects that we can do together that will help us all learn. For example, Manda talked about increasing biodiversity. Do you know how to do that? Where would you even begin? Do you know what plant species might be toxic to your horses and which ones are beneficial? What trees and shrubs grow well in your area and can create nesting areas for birds and provide flowers for pollinators? Let's find out together. Horses for Future will be a learning center that we grow together. It's our community meeting point. In addition to the Facebook group, we have started a website, sequestercarbon.com. Here we'll be building up an archive of articles and links to books, audio recordings, webinars, and other resources. If we're going to make a difference in climate change, we need to know how. So this site will be one to refer back to on a regular basis. It's going to be a growing resource base. All of this is in its infancy, but to me, this is so exciting. The news these days can be absolutely overwhelming. You hear so many grim statistics. The ice caps are melting faster than anyone expected. The past several summers have been the hottest on record. The hurricanes are getting stronger. The forest fires more destructive. The grim news just goes on and on. It can feel as though our actions don't matter, but they do. There are so many of us who have horses. When we each become better soil farmers, collectively, we will make a difference. So let's get started. Horses for Future supports the Fridays for Future initiatives. We want to take meaningful action that will help reverse climate change. So every Monday, through the Horses for Future Facebook group, we're going to announce a project for the week. This will be something everyone can participate in, whether you have your own land, or you board your horses, or maybe you don't even have a horse. Whether you are six years old or 60, everyone can participate in these projects. Through the Horses for Future Facebook group, we can share resources and ideas. Each Friday, we're going to celebrate our successes. 
For thousands of years, horses have been intimately woven into our history. Riding on their backs, we have spread out over the planet. We have ridden on them to war. We have used them to pull plows. Now let us enter a new relationship with horses, one that takes us in fellowship with them to a healthy planet. So join us on Monday for our next Horses for Future project. You'll find us on Facebook. And next week, we'll have part three of Amanda Scott's interview. Join us and help change the planet.